You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome, everybody. It's really nice to meet you. Um, of course, we're here to talk about King Kirby, the stage play turned into podcast uh, created by Fred Van Lenthe and Crystal Skillman. We have the entire cast of the original performance here to talk about this. My name is Rob Sokowitz. I am a writer and sayer of things about comics. I am senior media and entertainment contributor at Forbes. Um, I write for other publications and teach at University of Washington. Most of all, uh, I'm a lifelong comics fan. My life was changed forever reading the work of Jack Kirby um, when I was a kid. And like a lot of people that are in the comics side of things, known about Jack Kirby my whole life. Uh, and the story of how Jack Kirby and his genius was kind of eclipsed and, and pushed out of the way by his collaborators and by the business of comics, which is kind of built on an Indian's graveyard of injustice and, and historical expropriation of creators. Uh, it's been a terrible story and it's gotten more terrible because of how big these properties have gotten that what was once originally, you know, just hit comic book series this big, being the basis of toys and games and now multi-billion dollar movies and the center of a global entertainment industry. And the people that created that, like Jack Kirby, the powerful imaginations that came up with these stories, their full story has never really been told. So when King Kirby came out, I saw the play performed actually in Seattle in 2014 and was really thought that it was great to take the inside story of what people who know comics history know to be the truth about how Kirby was treated and start bringing that to a mass audience uh, was a really important thing to do. So, so I was inspired by it then and I'm really glad to see that it's uh, getting a uh, revival in public interest right now. So, um, and if you haven't heard it, if you haven't heard of it, you're in for a treat, check out the podcast. They're extremely well done. Um, but first, I want to begin with Fred and Crystal and just ask you, how did this project come about and how did it sort of harmonize your two creative skills to, to bring this to the stage? Well, uh, I, uh, I was always really into Marvel Comics. I sort of grew up reading the original Stan and Jack stuff in reprint form. And I um, uh, only heard about jack kirby sort of after the fact once i was in college i mean i knew he was but i just thought he was sort of the sidekick to stan lee because that's sort of what the, what the public perception was and then like a lot of adolescence once i found out a story was bs i got all pissed off and started researching it really heavily and then i discovered as, as listeners of the podcast have found out and readers of the play have found out that his life really encompassed the whole of america in the 20th century he grew up in the Jewish ghetto. He fought in World War II. His he did the romance comics in the fifties. He was he did the psychedelic work in the sixties, and uh, and I just thought it was a really sort of Shakespearean sort of experience, 
with uh, uh, that would really make for a great story. Initially, I was doing a biography, but I was in my 20s and kind of like never finishing anything. And I was dating this lovely playwright at the time. And I was like, she's writing plays. Who was that? I don't know. I don't know. Some lady. And I was like, she's writing plays. I can do that too. And so I wrote a draft of the play. Uh, we thought it was pretty good. But we did a reading of it, but there was really no uh, venue for it in like, this is like 2002, I want to say. I think the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies had just come out. Yep. Uh, But it kind of got put in a drawer until Crystal, uh, who later married me, much to her chagrin, uh, (laughs) you learned about- Because of the play. (laughs) Because, well- I hope there's more to it than that. No, no, no. Uh, then you you got approached by the Comic Book Theater Festival, right? Yes, uh, the Brick Theater, um, which really uh, kind of launched me in in um, Brooklyn. Um, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Lewanzik and 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 Hope, uh, they were doing these great festivals, and when they came up with the comic book. Um, uh, one, they were very excited and, and they were like, Fred writes comics and does he have anything? I was like, well, this is perfect. And, you know, as we started to uh, do the final tweaks too, we, we, we realized, you know, we realized a bit before that we were working on the play together and then we really kind of joined forces. Um, and actually, initially it was very interesting because um, we were supposed to, the first time we were supposed to do it, um, you know, we really actually, <laughs> well, what happened was, is I was working for Marvel exclusively at the time writing comics. This is after I, I sort of went pro after first doing all this research and I, I was doing a comic book called Compa Comics. Now I've said too many, the comics too many times in one sentence, uh, where, uh, we tell, dealt with Jack Kirby suing to get his, his artwork back, which is the subject of the, of the, uh, of the climax of the play and the Marvel business and legal people were very unhappy with me and threatening, calling up and threatening me that they're going to cancel my contract and stuff. And so at the time I told Crystal, let's put this in the drawer again (laughs) and see if we, they don't do another comic theater festival. Yeah. And it was really, uh, I, I think, I think for all artists, like a real, including Jack, a lot of his stories about creating over and over again and getting up and making the next superhero and doing the next work. And, so, the, and I should point out the heiress had just started suing Marvel right. at that point. So the, Mar- the Marvel was all on edged and freaked out. So when that happened, uh, and I remember, I remember distinctly, it's that you never forget certain moments because I was so excited about this upcoming production we had just talked about. Um, and I was brushing my teeth. Like I really remember. And I remember the phone call that you got because- when you hear a phone call like that on the other side, it's just very chilling because it's very clearly. Oh yeah, right. The yeah, phone call it's very Marvel, clearly yeah. someone saying, you know, you know, it, it, I could tell what the phone call, the nature of the phone call was. And so, um, if you've never been threatened by large corporations, people, you haven't lived. Yeah, it's not fun for anybody. Um, and so, uh, but the comic book theater, uh, that Roger Nasser, bless his soul, who helped out with these festivals, he called me up and he said, "Oh my God." That's awful. And I was like, I know, Roger, I know, but we can't, we really can't, we really can't. We have to figure this out. We need to give some time. And he's like, oh, if only Fred had written more comics. I was like, huh. And he's like, and only if we could take one of those and adapt it into something. And I was like, hmm. And Fred had uh, Action Philosophers. So we actually bought time for the play of King Kirby. Um, by to work on it, yeah. To, by first doing the play of Action Philosophers. And after that, it gained traction and that that died down for you with Marvel, right. then then we um the second and, time and the festival happened. No, it wasn't the second time it happened the festival happened. Uh, think, well they skipped a year. They skipped a year. Yeah. So they did it again. So it was the second time that that we brought King Kirby well, and, in. And I should say that in Crystal re- 
pulled out the script that was 10 years old at this point and rewrote a bunch of it. To, and she's like, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? I was like, you're the co-writer. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. It was a beautiful gift. My name was on it when I got it back. I thought that was lovely. And I, and the biggest shift I always talk about, like what, what, what was the huge shift? And I was something I was realizing as a writer myself is we had to first immerse people into the world of Kirby and the characters and the fiction. And for anyone, I think who wasn't in the end, it was a, a little bit, it was exciting, but alienating and perhaps we were giving away too much too soon and so i suggested doing the flip that we start with the reality and the stakes of what's going on with kirby at that time and, and then we both came up with the idea of and, him drawing at that table from when he first walked in and we cast these lovely actors and we had a wonderful run in brooklyn and the week i think the show opened marvel settled with the kirby heirs because the supreme court had threatened to take up the case and so disney which had bought marvel at this point were like this is not worth a big fight so so uh so that's why you now thank goodness see jack in the begin you know was credited with co-creation and all the marble movies and all that stuff happy yes, ending now you remind me that i have been uh, remiss in my moderator's duties uh for introducing the panel and i would actually ask oh. you guys to sort of go around and introduce yourselves because we have the entire cast here and if you yep. just sort of introduce yourself and say who you uh portray in the in the play and let's start with uh with steven Oh, hi. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve Ritazzi. Uh, I'm an actor, and I uh, had the great joy to play uh, Jack Kirby in, uh, in King Kirby. And how, about, uh, how about Nat? Hey, I'm Nat Cassidy, and I play Stan Lee, among some other very fun roles. Awesome. Amy? Hi, I'm Amy Lee Pearsall, and I play Roz Kirby and others. Joe? I'm um, Joe Mathers. I had the uh, good fortune to be able to play Joe Simon and others. And finally, uh, Tim. Hi, uh, I'm Timothy. I played uh, various sort of adversaries in uh, Jack Kirby's life. Uh, George Patton, um, Martin Goodman, uh, Frederick Wortham, um, and uh, Fellini, who wasn't quite an adversary, but was definitely there. Momentarily. Definitely an obstacle. <laughs> yeah. And then we also have the we also have the audio the sound uh, producer for the podcast series. Uh, Bobby, wanted to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Bobby Cronin. I wrote the score and did all the sound editing and sound design for the audio drama. So just to start with you, Bobby, a, a quick question: Was it uh, so? What we're hearing on the podcast is the actual recording of the performance of the of the play was it a challenge to adapt it to sort of move from the from the theater of butts and seats to the theater of the mind uh, what what sort of went into adapting that um it was actually it was kind of uh it, i'm gonna say it was just really fun to do it um, i've worked on a lot of film before and i mostly make my career writing musicals and um, i had never done something like this and so it was a really good exercise for my brain but I realized that my job was to make sure that at any moment the audience is listening, that they understand where we are, uh, what is happening, what the drive of the story is. And, you know, when Crystal and, and Fred approached me and they said, I, I know about their play King Kirby, and when they said it was King Kirby, I was like, I get to write a superhero theme song. Yes, <laughs> this is so cool. And it, um, I mean, I just had a really great time doing it, but it, it was, um, you know, because it was a live, uh, piece I was able to you know I could play with timing I could uh, stretch out a scene I could make a scene faster if I felt that the drive needed to go 
So I kind of uh, used a bit of a director brain in there as well. Very cool. Well, that sounds great. And it really, uh, as you say, it really puts you in the, the sense of place for all of it. It's a very, very well done thing. And just an open question for all of the cast. Uh, did any of you guys know much about Jack Kirby or, you know, the sort of the comics biz side of things that were portrayed in this play before you became involved in this project? Um, I'd like to say something. Uh, before we move on to that, I just have to say, I, I listened to uh, all of uh, Bobby's work uh, on the podcast right before this interview, and it is astonishing. It is absolutely. so much fun, and your music is absolutely amazing. Thank you uh, so much. I appreciate that. What a, what a wonderful job. It's, you just did, and it's very hard. I know we did this recording, but we really came from a theatrical place with this piece. And uh, it's very rare to see this kind of creation from a theatrical face. And uh, uh, I just thought it was, it was just expertly done and just so much fun. And I just wanted to say that before we move on. Here, here. No, I, was saying, I was saying to Thank Fred you. and Crystal before we started that I was listening to the podcast um, at the gym earlier today. And I was so engrossed in it that I lost track of how many reps I was doing and I almost hurt myself. <laughs> Uh-oh, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, uh, you, it definitely, definitely puts you in the, in the mindset of, of where you are and, and really um, uh, brings those characters out as well. So back to, back to the question, was anybody here, you know, pre-existing, uh, you know, Kirby or Marvel Maven uh, before this, or, um, you know, were you, were you surprised at all by what you, what you discovered about that relationship in, in the performance here? Uh, I, I personally was familiar uh, in the comics from way back, uh, and I guess was familiar with the uh, the backstage drama. Not, I mean, not all the details like about relationship with Roz or you know uh, his his own person Jack Kirby's personal details, but the comic side of things and who the characters were definitely. Um, yeah. And, and anybody else, or is this just a, a just sort of an Amy? You've got a thought? Um, yeah, I was just going to say, honestly, in terms of, of Jack Kirby's work, as, as somebody who enjoyed um, watching animated films and, and the superhero films. I honestly had no idea about who Jack Kirby was, um, any of his uh, c contributions to the field, um, really my entry drug, if you will, um, as for many other people to the story of Jack Kirby was Michael Chabon's book that was inspired by his life, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Um, and I loved that book. I was like, and then somebody was like, oh yeah, it's about this guy. And I'm like, who's this guy? And, you know, so that kind of started going down that hole. And when Fred and Crystal um, and Jack Hurley, who was the uh, director of the stage production, you know, reached out and asked me to come in and read, I was like, heck yes. Um, so that was really how I came into this. Have, have any of you guys, um, ha uh, did you had the chance to meet either Jack or Roz when they were alive? I know that, uh, Jack died in what, 91, 92, something like that. And Roz died in 97. Uh, no, but I, I was in, in an elevator in London with Stan Lee once. <laughs> yeah. high, oh, high school me would have been super excited to have met Jack Kirby, but, but it did not happen. 
Yeah, because I mean, you know, you, you really evoke these uh, these characters. Did you did you research? I mean, did you listen to recordings and did you uh, did you do anything to sort of capture their their true life personalities in your portrayals, particularly uh, Stephen and uh, Matt and Amy, um, because th those characters' voices, to a certain extent, were kind of known to the public, especially Stan Lee. Yeah, I, uh, uh, it was interesting because, uh, uh, and to, to answer your previous question too, I knew of the name Jack Kirby, like I knew of the name Steve Ditko, like I just knew these names, but I knew Stan Lee, like Stan Lee was the icon that I was familiar with uh, whenever I thought of Marvel, which I was a fan of growing up, but I, I, I tended to stick more to, I was like a DC and Dark Horse comics fan, and I would dabble in Marvel from time to time. I liked the X-Men. Uh, uh, but, but so I wasn't that familiar with anything about the story. Like, I think I knew there was a little bit of controversy and probably some authorship questions and all that stuff, but that's kind of inherent in, in most, uh, most uh, uh, industries like this. So I was, you know, I, I, I didn't know the details. Um, and so what was fascinating to me working on this was uh, I, I almost got to work from that outside in sort of, uh, sort of place because I knew the public persona of Stanley and Stanley is such a, uh, cultivator of public persona. That's one of his greatest gifts. So it was interesting to, uh, to kind of deconstruct that and work almost backwards from that point, uh, to the point where, uh, like the voice was one of the first things I kind of obsessed with getting right because it's such a uh, such an iconic, recognizable voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and in in a weird way, like I don't I don't think I uh, necessarily like recreate the voice. Like I don't think it entirely sounds exactly like him mimic wise. But I was trying to find that that energy behind it, that always on stage sort of energy behind it to. To kind of show uh, the, the 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 voice with a capital V, not like the nitty gritty details. Well, of course, Kirby first meets Stan Lee when he's seventeen. When Stan Lee is seventeen years old, and he's just a kid working in the office, you know, and annoying everybody. So this is Stan before he was anybody. Yeah. So you had the the challenge of sort of recreating that, you know, to to let everybody know that this person is eventually going to grow up to become Stan Lee, but. At that moment, he's just an annoying seventeen-year-old kid. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Stephen, you you had, of course, the 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 meat the meaty title part here, and Kirby is such a complex and fascinating guy because he's on one hand this visionary creator with all of these big ideas in his head, and yet he's like this very down-to-earth, blue-collar guy. You know, he's like tough on some things and very scrappy, but then he's intimidated by you know, people in suits and things I, like he, there's, he's kind of a bundle of contradictions. I'm just kind of curious, how did you approach that complexity in your performance? And what are the things about Kirby's personality that resonated with you that you wanted to really bring out? I'm going to continue this theme of, of not answering your question, but going back to something <laughs> I just have to say this, this show, I, when, when Fred told me this was, what, when did you say, what year was this? 2014. 2014. 2014. I, it just blew my mind. I was like, wait, six years? What? Um, it, it's all kind of a fog. So it was really amazing to listen to the new podcast. And I have to say, Nat, you really, really captured the spirit of Stan Lee. 
in that's really kind of amazing. I went, wait, that's Stan Lee. And said, no, it's not exactly the quality of the voice. It's just the persona. And even being the young 17 year old kid, that scene, it's so great. And then just the progression over the show, it's just, it's just wonderful. Um, and everyone, I have to say, um, everyone does such great work on the show. It was such a, uh, it was such a joy doing the production, but then to hear everyone's voices and it's such great work each of the actors has done. And um, I have to say, I just cracked up laughing at so many parts, but I just love Bellini so much. <laughs> uh, Tim, your Fellini is so is so much fun. That that character just pops out of nowhere and just makes me laugh. Anyway, you know, I have to say that, it, that a big quote in our household is, we're like a very much in a comic. Like a <laughs> That's hilarious. It's so, <sighs> it's so great. But everyone did such great work. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was trying to remember back because, you know, a lot has happened. Yes. Since, just last week. Yeah. <laughs> just in this past, uh, past day. Um, but yeah, I remember uh, um, uh, doing a lot of research and there is a lot of also uh, uh, video and audio of, of Jack Kirby, which also helps you to kind of capture, again, um, like 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 not, I, I'm not trying to do his voice per se, but capture that character. But yeah, you're just drawn to this story. I mean, uh, uh, Fred and Christie did such a great job capturing it. I think just reading your script alone, you just really empathize with this character, uh, Rob, which you described very well. Um, and uh, so I, I just really connected with that kind of, and I'm, I'm a Brooklyn, I'm a Bay Ridge, Bay Ridge boy. So uh, uh, I do remember doing a lot of, a lot of research uh, uh, beforehand trying to capture it. But then as happens sometimes in productions and probably casting as, uh, is a big issue with this, everything just started to click and we all just started to work together and feed off, off each other. And it was just a great uh, production team as well. So that helps. And I do realize it's been a while for you guys. So, so uh, pardon my uh, digging into the past here, but um, for the people that are tuning in and going to listen to this podcast, it's going to seem like just yesterday. So, uh, <laughs> um, so, so Joe, uh, you, have the role of Joe Simon, who is somebody that is maybe known to the to the more inside comics people, but uh, a a less familiar collaborator with Jack Kirby than Stan Lee was. Tell us a little bit about that character and and how you and basically your background in in this project and how you came to it. Um, uh, well, I, from a as far as uh, being involved in the project, um, uh, I I have done a number of different. Uh, plays that Crystal has written, um, so I was very familiar with her work. I was actually got to do that in. Uh, and Timothy and I were, were in Action Philosophers together. Like I mean, we. I I love doing Crystal's work. I love doing her plays. It's, she's she's got great stuff, and I'm I'm a huge fan of Fred's work um, from you know many many companies. And I'm an I'm an old comic book nerd myself. I mean, not Dark Horse, Marvel, and and even now comics. That was that was when Fright Night was a big go to for me. When they had that title, wow, you're um, dropping the now comics references. Oh yeah, hey, it's what they had at the at the convenience store. Um, but <laughs> but for me coming into uh, coming coming into to look at this this character of Joe Simon, this uh, you know, I, I I the research I did was you know being aware that a, a co-creator of, of Captain America and Steve Rogers and, and Bucky and 
different version of Bucky than in the films. <laughs> but like, um, what I did was uh, because I didn't, I didn't have the ability to really get a good lock on what he sounded like, uh, and I didn't really, I wasn't able to find a lot of material where he was so public because I think he also made a huge transition in his personal life and his career, uh, where I think Jack had this creative energy that just couldn't be contained and he would just fight through everything he could to keep doing what he loved doing i feel like joe hit a point where he was just like it's not fun for me anymore i'm gonna mm. stop and he kind of disappeared out of like the the public eye from from the comic standpoint after after a certain point he was just like i'm gonna go do advertising where i can go home to my family and be happy and i don't want to uh, I'm good. I, I made my money. Um, so my process, a lot of it was I looked, I looked at as many pictures, uh, images, photos of, um, of, of Joe Simon, just because I found that, or I find that when, when trying to figure out how a character uh, lives on stage, I like to look at how they move. And so photos and images are really helpful to me because you can see how their posture is. And he had this, he's had this really sort of interesting way of holding his upper body very stiffly. Um, but he was, you know, in the photos, he also seems very relaxed. So it was like, all right, this is a guy who I feel like plays the, the suit game really well, but would get along with Jack Kirby phenomenally because they have a similar background, because they have similar ideas, they have similar tastes. Um, so uh, for me, a lot of the process was, was literally just watching what Steven was doing and going, how can I offer a counterpoint to that rhythmically and physically in the space, which you know, you're know you not really going to get in a podcast, but I think <laughs> vocal, I mean, like, you know, Stephen has a, has a timber and a speed at which he, he delivers his lines. Um, so I was like, Joe Simon needs to be a little bit held back from that. Uh, and that, that, then, you know, kind of figuring that kind of stuff out, then people go like, how hard is he thinking about everything? And is he two steps ahead of Jack Kirby or is he three behind and just really smooth at keeping up? And I think that for me, that was a lot of that. Damn it. it was a non-competitive, but, uh, but a desire to be on Jack's level. I think it's kind of how I wanted to play. I mean, the, the, the dynamic between the two of them was really interesting because they were, as you say, I, I always picture them a little bit like Abbott and Costello, you know, and it's like, uh, yeah. the, you know, that, that uh, Kirby was the sort of scrappy, you know, guy and, and uh, Joe was a little more this sort of smooth polished but as you say they had a lot in common um, yeah I'm remembering you know just talking about this 2014 I'm remembering that our wonderful costume designer just went above and beyond the call of duty and she just came up with these voluminous binders of period photos of our major characters and just walked into the first rehearsal with it and I was like damn Holly and Merrill, yeah. Holly and Merrill, they, they they knocked that out of the park. Really and they, did. they had ample reference for everybody. It was pretty incredible. We might see some of that on, on the Insta, um, but uh, it was a wonderful to on see. On the gram. It was wonderful as an author to see when you walked in in your costumes. It really was, um, it was an incredible moment. Um, and I remember so many conversations too about the spirit of the characters. And Stephen, I remember a lot of talk about that too, because, and I got so excited about that. And I think I, I, I heard so much from the audience 
they were like, he was Jack, but he was, he brought a new dimension to him. And we heard a lot about that um, for each of the characters, which was so great because, um, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, I, I, I always uh, have an interesting view of what's commercial and all those sorts of things. But at the same time, I didn't see this as a bio play. I saw this as a play that tells his story, but it is a play. And, and what is that? And so I, it was exciting to see how much they responded to these creative interpretations that clearly were these characters, but they weren't by no means imitating these real life people. I never met Jack Kirby in person, but the first year I was at San Diego Comic-Con was 1997. And I was you know, a kid in a uh, candy shop and I found an original Jack Kirby sketch at what I thought was an original Jack Kirby sketch at an art dealer that I bought um, for probably as much money as I had brought to the show. But I thought, oh, this is a one chance to I can own this piece. So I took it over to the table of a fanzine called the Jack Kirby Collector to show these guys like, hey, look what I got. And they were looking at it. They said, I don't know that this is a Kirby original. Like you should, uh, you know, I don't. Um, and so Roz Kirby, who was still alive at that time, was sitting at the table and she looks at it and she's like, where did you get this? <laughs> and I said, over at this guy, she, you know, show me who, show me who sold you this piece. So I, I go over there and I said, um, you know, I said to the dealer, I said, I just bought this for, I mean, I have reason to believe that it may not be authentic. He said, what do you mean you have reason to believe it's not authentic? I said, well, talk to this lady. And Roz is in a wheelchair and she says, she says, you give this young man his money back. That is not my husband's work. And it's like the piece like disappeared behind the desk. He like counts out the money, says, go away. Um, that, that was my one and only encounter with, with Roz Kirby and, and she <laughs> passed away shortly thereafter. Wow. Um, but, uh, but Amy, that, that, that listening to you uh, capture that character and also the enduring relationship like a lot of Jack Kirby's story is bittersweet not the Jack and Roz story that's a hundred percent sweet like they found each other they found soulmates in each other what what I mean um there's a question here somewhere <laughs> just talk <laughs> about that that chemistry and and how you kind of captured that and and brought that to life I guess uh well going back to uh to Crystal's mentioning um Holly Holly ran our costume designer bringing in all of those photographs um it was such a treat to me to see, you know, their family photographs. They were just very, very free with one another, very easy. It was clear, you know, that they had a lot of fun, that there was an enormous amount of love there and an enormous amount of respect. Um, and in my own personal research on, on Roz, I was lucky, thank you, internet, um, to find a number of, of interviews that she actually did when she was older, you know, she, she sat down and the young whippersnappers came out and, and asked Roz questions and she was only too happy to talk about, you know, how she met uh, Jack in Brooklyn when her family moved in and, and rented out the apartment upstairs and his actual pickup to her was, do you want to come up and look at my etchings? And I'm like, <laughs> he did not, but he did. Um, and that was the first time she saw Captain America and she was apparently very disappointed that he didn't try anything funny, but no, he was a complete gentleman. Um, <laughs> but she was, she was an enormous champion of his creative work. Um, she was very loyal to him. Um, she took the lumps that he took in equal measure and, and she took it very personally. And, and she wanted to protect him because 
um, you know, Jack was a very creative person. And I think as many creatives do, you know, we just put our stuff out there. We just want our stuff to be out there. We want it to be loved. And we don't necessarily think about how it's going to be protected. Um, and, you know, Jack was, to his credit, you know, he was trying to do right by his family. You know, he had four kids. He was trying to win back these 88 pages or whatever it was, you know, so he could have something to pass along to his kids. But at the end of the day, you know, Roz was like, well, you're not thinking about legacy. You know, you're, you're not, it, it was really, really hard. Um, and I, I just, I guess I saw, that's how I tend, when I love people, that's how I tend to love people, you know, kind of fiercely and, and kind of like that rabid dog, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um, for better or worse. Um, so that was, um, I guess that was, that was something in Roz, the character of Roz that I tried to bring some of myself to, if that answers your question at all. No, that's, that, that's great. And, you know, again, it's been a while for you guys and, and did, you know, in listening to the, to the shows, you know, as they've been redone for this podcast, did you hear anything in there, either in your own performances or in your, or in your uh, cast members' performances that surprised you or it's like, wow, that was really cool. Or I'd forgotten that, was there anything that sort of jumped out and, and surprised and delighted you for, for rediscovering it? A lot of the dialogue, just, just, the, uh, just the writing and the dialogue. Like there are things that every one of these characters says that just, that just hit like a ton of bricks. Like there's just moments where like, just somebody has like the line, you know, maybe we should start with the villain. Like I, I love that. <laughs> that is stuck with me. And hearing hearing it again is like, God, oh, that's great. That's just that's just cool. Yeah, it's such a uh, uh, it's such a an economical piece. It covers so much ground, and it covers it so swiftly without giving anything short shrift at all. And it was, I I kind of forgot about how efficient and. Uh, uh, just just a freight train uh, the momentum could be it was it was a very interesting experience recording this uh, and I think you can kind of hear it in the recording uh, on the dialogue uh, side because we you know audio dramas are, are you know experiencing kind of a renaissance right now and it's this thing that is becoming more and more prevalent but we recorded this uh, around a table in a comic book shop after <laughs> hours uh, you know, basically with one take, just with a bunch of mics uh, in front of us, coming off of the production that we had just done. Uh, so it it has the 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 efficiency, uh, uh, and I should say, John Hurley uh, uh, is also just a, he's he's big on momentum as well. So it was a great fit him with this piece, uh, creating this uh, incredibly streamlined narrative that goes from from. You know, a kid on the uh, streets of Brooklyn to to the Mets battlefield in World War II to uh, the '70s and 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 uh, uh, auction houses and and litigation about uh, intellectual property. Like, there's so much sweep. And what is it? 80 minutes? 70 minutes? Like, it's such a. And we were contractually obligated from the, <laughs> the comic book theater festival because because we've all done theater festivals, right? There was a show after us and a show before us. So we had to get in, do our stunt thing and get out before we got yelled at. And I, I want to say our contracts were 75 minutes. Yeah, it's yeah. 70, 75, yeah. yeah. 
Um, it feels the, right. The uh, and you can, podcast you can, is a bit longer. <laughs> you can feel that though in the in the in the dialogue. I think you can you can feel the uh, this is a group of actors who have this in their bones now. It's not the beginning of a run sort of vibe. It is the yeah. Let's get back together after the run and just kind of fall back into uh, doing this piece. Uh, and so like some of it, some of it is the fact that it has been a thousand years since we did it. Uh, that makes it kind of interesting to listen to. But I think some of it too is just recapturing, uh, getting to recapture that feeling of just this group, this small group. I even forget how small this cast is because there's so many characters, but just hearing five people clicking together, uh, almost running on autopilot because they've got this show in their bones. Uh, that was that was a blast to hear again. I honestly forgot how many characters Timothy played. <laughs> like, and I was like, oh, he kind of is a glue holding the whole show together. As everybody else, yeah. Um, and each character know. has like five lines. Like, it's they're so they're so memorable in such a short time, and everybody's yeah, well, performances is so delineated and well wrought that you only absolutely. need. Like, Five seconds of stage time. There's a character. Yeah, run, run, run through who uh, your your pantheon. Like you, you played sort of. Uh, of course, you played Martin Goodman, who, uh, despite his name, is not a good man. And, no. <laughs> and lots of and lots of other. Jack uh, Lieber uh, from DC, right? That was his Jack, name. Jack, oh, Jack Lieberwitz, another. Yeah. Lieberwitz, yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, Lieber Lieberwitz on either side of the the uh, distinguished competition. Uh, uh, Patton, um, Frederick Vertham, uh, uh, Fellini, of course. Uh, those are kind of the main named characters. Fox. Well, with Vertham, right? oh, Fox, right, as yeah. well, right. I'm king of the comics. Right, yeah. <laughs> you're the comics, boys. Now, with Wortham, you're actually reproducing a, like a, a historical, like I've, I've actually heard Wortham say some of the words that you said. Uh, in there, in terms of talking about how comics contribute to delinquency well, and and his whole his whole stick, did you did, were you familiar with that with that person at all? Or? The seduction of the innocent. Yeah, I I had I had uh, I was familiar with it, but I didn't really dig in until we worked on you know, the project. Um, and the Wortham bit. What's cool about this, Tim, is that is it that was sort of an interesting thing doing the podcast. Because Bobby, I don't know if you remember, but in the original draft of that episode, you you had Wortham speaking in this kind of giant, Tim's voice was kind of echoing out in this big empty hall. But I, being the huge comic historian nerd I am, know that that was in the Foley Courthouse in Manhattan, which was this room jam-packed with people. And I was like, oh, why don't I just show Bobby the, I forgot an actual film of Wortham literally doing this. Right. So I just sent it him and you were just like, do, 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 done. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. But it's just so stunning to me how, because it's the same recording, Tim. It's Tim's same report, performance from Midtown Comics, but with two completely different vocal treatments, you get a totally different sound space, which I feel naive that it did not, I did not realize that that was the power of changing those, that the timber and that audio, you know? What's really fun is that uh, we both love rewriting so much. Um, but one thing that's uh, sometimes sections would go, but very rarely would a whole entire section go. Although sometimes we talked about it. So 
Wortham, when he, when Wortham, the Wortham section started, we just found it so fascinating. I think it was taking up like 10 minutes. It was becoming like the Wortham show. And they were like, how do we, and then, and then. But it wasn't, it was the fact it was in this big empty room. And so we didn't cut a line. Oh, no, but you I just the, narrowed the space. In the play, when we, oh, well, in, the play, in, in yeah. terms of how we got to the script, but in the original script, I think we, I don't know, we had like maybe four hours of rehearsal time. That was all Wortham. We were like, you know, dealing with, it was the Wortham show. Um, how how was that? How was that staged in person? Because it sounds so seamless on the podcast. It sounds like it was actually written for audio, you know, for an audio play because of the way that it kind of cuts in and out. I mean, is, are, are Kirby and Simon on stage and Wortham is in the, you know, like you changing the spotlight or something? Because that was really I interesting. Think that's right. Because didn't you have to bring your own chair out, Tim? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I was. I remember. I can. I was down left. I remember. Uh, I think that, that was my section. first time off. Get my first time to go off stage for a second. Right. Okay. That's sounds- yeah. I because I mean, for a lot of the, the whole thing really moves. So it, I mean, it's John Hurley's uh, staging genius. The 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 you know facile alacrity of the script being really much like a comic book. I mean, it's got like what what everything that and said about what's in it. It, it is is jam packed. And is exciting and is economically written and, and is fully written as a comic book so that it, and it had the momentum and performance so that when the with these moments of rest, you know, particularly Jack's emotional beats and Jack and Ross's emotional beats, they really earn those pauses because everything else is like morphing and, and it really replicates the brilliance of Kirby's imagination, I think. And it's really you know, indie and, theater, you know, that's, I mean, that was in terms of the physicality of the space. We love the brick, but it's the brick and so right. you well know named. every i think we were rehearsing in a space much um shinier um so mm-hmm. that's right we were i forgot about <laughs> we that we were we were in a very shiny space right, so we where was that that was the whatchamadoodle yeah like theater complex yeah. and then we moved to a garage to actually do the show <laughs> and, and so there and of course and this is happens i, I have uh, the musical i'm working on with bobby i'm working on a few pieces with bobby but uh, mary max the musical we work on together um, so, um, but he knows, man, I, I keep, I always say, you know, no, this time, not no props, you know, and it's not going to happen. <laughs> so Fred, but also in my defense, Fred really likes hats and wait, you asked me, what's the, what's the heart of theater? Funny hats. He like, really likes hats. hats. Just wear um, different hats. But so with the props in this, in terms of the physicality too and movement. Lost in podcast box. though, unfortunately, you can't do that on all your drama. <laughs> right. But within the actual production in the, in the black box, you know, the, uh, it's hard to distinguish lighting in that way. You know what I mean? You have to really work hard at it. And John worked really hard with the designers and of course on a, a festival plot and all these sorts of things. So the fact that really the actors could yeah, distinguish in these moments, move seamlessly um, was, was really exciting. Um, but also the pages, the actual, that was one of the things I remember we talked about so much and Steve and I remember you just, you know, wow, that, that uh, tracking you know, plot of these props that were, when are the pages blank? When are they now a sketch? When is it now inked? When is it now? And sometimes you're following the, actually the progression of one whole piece, which we had artist friends uh, provide yes. art for the, the sequence. And so Dean Haskell was a great um, supporter of the Davis. show, Riley Brown. Davis. So this play was blessed by the comic book community in, in many ways. Um, and you could feel that energy in, in the piece. What's fun about it coming back to it when we did it both at the comic book, um, uh, Midtown Comics, but also now as an audio official audio drama writer doing audio drama, um, I can say, gosh, how cool is it that we 
I love that physicality, but that we can move and Bobby through music can bring us so seamless. This really was born for audio. Like it really, it comes alive um, in just the voices and, and, and us inferring the movement. And one of my favorite new things is that um, uh, in the production, when you walked in, you would, uh, Stephen as Kirby was at his um, drawing table. On stage, yeah. And I really, I mean, I, I find that so moving. And he's also speaking from, you know, basically beyond the grave because the auction of his work is happening at the same time. And he says, stop, I don't want to hear that number. It's, you know, I don't want to hear that when you're gone, which is something in, it, that you'll be hearing um, when you listen to the, to the show. But there was, and this, this show only played for eight performances, um, but uh, the audience reaction, uh, some, some people had studied Kirby all their lives. There was one girl who was 25 and she burst into tears and she couldn't stop crying when she saw Stephen as Jack drawing. And um, there were these you know, visceral reactions to feeling like they were with Jack either. And then people grabbing me after being like, I didn't know that this is where Captain America came from. Captain America changed my life. And now oh. this man has changed my life. And so there was so much emotion and reaction, both from people who were diehard fans of all ages, uh, genders, race, um, and uh, whether, you, you know, you were really into the comics or not. So I, that's something that always kept pushing me about the project. One thing I love about the audio drama that you'll hear is how Bobby has scored that and how you're going to feel like you're right there with Jack drawing. And it's, I find it very, just as emotional as the visual. And I think that's one of the fun of audio is how can you capture something so visual just through sound so you can now imagine it for yourself. Now, when you guys, you were saying that this, this play was a long time coming between the time that you originally conceived of it and it came to the stage and all during that time, you know, there was this kind of dramatic irony of the fact that we, the audience, or any, the people that were in, in tune with this situation, if you heard of Marvel characters, you know, 99 people out of 100, if you asked them who created these characters, they would say, well, Stan Lee created these characters. And so, you know, there, you were either, a, you know, part of the misinformed public about it, or you were aware of the injustice that what became of Jack Kirby subsequently was that he was, you know, sort of swept under the rug of the official story of the of the birth of Marvel. And then by the time the play saw the light of day, you said it, 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 this uh, Kirby's last appeal was getting adjudicated by the Supreme Court. And you said that, it, that eventually Disney caved in and settled with him because they didn't want to even take the chance because there were so many copyright law things at issue in that settlement. They didn't want to even have the Supreme Court weigh in on it because it would screw up all of Disney's business yeah. model. Well, in the, so in since the, that, yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to say, in the Kirby battle was something they inherited from Marvel before they bought Marvel. So it wasn't even a fight they had started. No, it's, it, but it's generations of, of, of uh, work to say that Marvel and Marvel's employee, Stan Lee, created these characters. Right. So since that time, since 2014, and after that settlement, now Kirby's name appears on all of the Marvel properties across all of the media. The Kirby family got what uh, is reportedly a very generous settlement. And meanwhile, you know, Stan Lee's stock has kind of fallen, especially in his, the tragic last year of his life, which was not so good. And then since his demise in, in 2018, um, you know, the, 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 the fact that he's not here to speak for himself anymore and his gigantic avuncular media personality is no longer present on the scene, we can kind of get more objective do you feel like Kirby's legacy that we're finally getting some true balance and perspective into 
you know, Kirby's contribution to this and his reputation, um, or do you feel like we still have a ways, ways to go on that? Um, you know, what, what's funny is, as I probably would have given a different answer to this in 2014 than I have now. And partly that's just because I've been doing a lot of, I'm currently right now doing a history of animation. Uh, I'm doing history of role-playing games. And you see in sort of business life and entertainment life, this theme keeps showing up. Like who created Apple, Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak? Who created Mickey Mouse? Was it Uberworks or Walt Disney? Uh, who created Dungeons and Dragons? Was it Dave Arneson or Gary Gygax? You have these uh, uh, these dichotomies repeating over and over and over again. And I think it's partly because it's hard for us to think about things beyond the auteur level, beyond like a singular creator level. But I also think it's because what ends up happening in these kinds of relationships is there is sort of a dominant, there's sort of an alpha and a beta, you know? And what ends up happening almost invariably, you know, Walt Disney and Ub I don't know if anyone this call has ever even heard of Uberworks, <laughs> but uh, but Walt Disney is such a dominant personality that he just kind of overwhelms everything else. So I think it's a doomed prospect in the sense of Jack Kirby ever becoming equal to Stan Lee, but I do think that um, I do think that it's improving. Yeah, I do. You want to strive for the Ben and Jerry model. That's right. Well, right. well there's, a, there's a biography of Stan Lee that's coming out this, this month. Uh, Abraham's our, book, our yeah. Abraham Reisman's uh, book called True Believer, um, where he, and he's, he said, you know, he's investigated this pretty thoroughly. And his answer on this is, we can't rule out the possibility that Jack Kirby did in fact create all of this stuff as he's claimed. That there's nothing in the, there's nothing in the history of Stan Lee that fully substantiates Stan Lee's claim to being the co-creator of this to the extent that Jack Kirby was, which is very- Right, well, I mean, you know, Nat, Nat has this line in, in, in the play, which is, is something Stan repeated repeatedly, which is that he changed his name because he wanted to write the great American novel. But for someone who's sort of known as being a writer, you know, the, the obvious question anyone would ask would be, where are the manuscripts? You know what I mean? Like, if you're, if you're a writer and that's primarily your job, we have one two-page outline about uh, that's supposedly the first Fantastic Four story, which looks nothing, reads nothing like what the actual Fantastic Four story was. And to a certain extent, we dramatize that in the play where Steven says, this is a little thin, I'm going to have to, you know, uh, uh, flesh this out. So, you know, I mean, Stan's sort of going on pure personality. And I, I guess I take the opposite sort of view from what Abraham is talking about, although what he says makes perfect sense to me as well, is that there's no you know, evidence that he didn't just, you know, talk to the letterer and do the dialogue after the pages came in. And the question is, what level of authorial intention do you ascribe to that, you know? There's a line in uh, uh, the show, too, that I thought was really illustrative and made a lot of sense to me, uh, dramatizing the conflict, the the authorship conflict, which was that uh, uh, Kirby says something to the effect of like, he gives me the premise and then I have to flesh it out over all yeah. the panels and stuff like that. And I, th I think that is a, that's a really easy misconception for a lot of people who aren't writers uh, to have about the creative process, that it's just about the idea. Right. Uh, but no, it's actually about the execution. The execution is where the idea actually like finds flesh right, and, exactly. and makes sense. Uh, but I could also, I, I, I must say, I thought you guys actually treat Stanley 
very fairly. Like I, I never once felt like I was playing the bad guy or anything like that. I never felt like I was playing some sort of cynical, uh, uh, you know, fake fiend who's, who's, you know, just manipulating things behind the scenes and trying to steal sort of Mandarin, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) Ben Kingsley, right? No, and, uh, there, and, there, and there's that terrific climactic scene that you and Stephen have at the end where, where, where Stan and Jack confront each other. I guess that's supposed to take place in the mid 80s uh, at some at some in point. A dream. The liminal space of the 80s. Yes. Um, where where, where basically both, both of you get the, you know, airier dirty laundry about this stuff. And I think both, I think it, it does. It, treats, it gives both sides uh, honest, sincere point of view. Yeah. And I got to say, like, as, as a writer myself, the, the older I get and the, the uh, you know, the, the further in one's career you get as a writer, like, I feel like I'm more like a Kirby a lot of times. And I'm trying to find those Stanley instincts in myself. Like, it's a balance you've got to find as a creative. Uh, in a lot of ways, their dynamic kind of works as a as an intern. There, there are two comic book creators inside of each of us. The Stanley <laughs> Warwick uh, for dominance. Right. Which one do you feed? Right. You <laughs> the business side is really important, especially you know these days when when content is king. You've got to make that kind of persona because uh, Fred's right. Like, how do you how do you ever compete with that in the end? Like yeah. Stanley TM is a real hard uh, juggernaut, pun intended. Well, that, to, that is the one thing that Stan Lee indubitably created was Stan Lee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Kirby had this era, you know, some people could that, I mean, it comes across sometimes in the play as naivete, but fundamentally it was an era, it, you know, it was, the, it was an arrogance born of genius. He thought he could just keep creating and everything he did, because he had done Captain American Romance and then Fantastic Four, he thought he could just keep creating. What he ran into was somebody like Stan Lee, who, who the minute he saw this big thing going on, wrapped both arms and legs around him, was like, mine, 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 you know, and 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 just kind of stuck with it. And, and Kirby thought he could walk away from that, but Lee never did. Lee never, Lee never, Lee's creative output ends in 1969, essentially, 68. And he kind of re- wrote that into the history books. There's also a fun artistic kind of question in the sense that. Um, you know, uh, comic books, as they say, were, it wasn't supposed to last. It wasn't, they didn't, yes. they couldn't see what all these things would become. And, and they Jack, were embarrassed by it. Jack loved the work. He lost yeah. himself in the work so much. Stan had so much outside time and had more, uh, was more an executive and, and uh, you know, more of the, the suit with his upbringing and taking over and all these sorts of things. So he had a little bit more time to contemplate the possibilities of what things could be become and what is the, how does that relationship work out? The other thing I think is kind of interesting, which I realized um, from 2014 as, as after we did the show, as time progressed and we were on panels, Probably something that made me tear up was we were at San Diego Comic-Con, uh, I think the first time, um, and we were on this beautiful panel with, um, you know, the creator of Mark Blade. Avenir. Yeah, and with Mark Avenir and uh, the-, the Darwin Cook was yeah. on that panel. Like so, great Darwin Cook. So many great, um, amazing people were on this panel and they all talked about Jack and they all knew Jack. Um, oh, Marv Wolfman. Was Marv, Wolfman right. Marv Wolfman described being 13, I think, and, 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 and what would happen is that when you were young and you wanted to break into comics, you would drive up to their house in San Diego and you no more Wolfman. That was Long Island, Long Island. No, it, and we whatever location. Cause I've heard it in uh, San Diego too. And I wrote, but yes, in Long Island about this story and Roz would be like, what do you want to eat? You know, and she, <laughs> she would make them tuna fish sandwiches 
and they would sit and they would watch Jack draw and they would ask him questions. So there was something about this couple that I was learning about at, 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 through these panels. Um, they were mentors and that's just something you don't hear about from the other family and the other side. Um, not that they weren't encouraging and like, you know, do a great job, but true mentorship. And, and, uh, and, and, and so I think where Jack wins is that there's this legacy of comic book artists born out of conversations with him, studying with him, wanting to do take for. In fact, Fernando, who draws Heat Fighter, is working on another comic book, and right away he's using Kirby dots, and he's like, "The Kirby is intentional." Like that never dies. That is so strong that even if they hadn't won the lawsuit, there there is something he's done with his artwork with artists that the new generations are bringing it forward. Um, it's really, really inspiring. In a long, in a lot of ways, I feel like Stanley was a master at creating fans, whereas Jack Kirby was a master of creating uh, a, like like that legacy that he wasn't seeing financially, but he created a legacy of of art. Like nobody says, "Well, I draw this the Stanley way." No one does that. <laughs> that, that that's not a thing. But people go like, "Oh." Yeah, the Kirby hand like that's <laughs> so there's something I think there's something uh like as as an artist I think there's something far more real and lasting to that and to Jack's work and his 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 legacy of mentorship and people saw what Jack people see what Jack Kirby did and want to do it like my six-year-old daughter I've like you know you can't you have to look at this but you can't open it but she, she's drawing, I mean, they're delightful. They're about a werewolf girl. She's drawing her own comic books right now. And that makes me very happy. So I'm trying to expose her to like, other, but I can't say like, oh, well, here's a contract that Stanley drew up one time like that. Good business, but who cares? Licensing, kid, licensing. licensing. <laughs> I mean, like, obviously you should care and it's important, but it's not, to me, that's not the, that's not where the heart is. And that, that's, a, that's a, a thing that Steven gets to talk about. Like it's, it's where the fire is, where the heart is. Like that's a, he felt all of those things and he made us feel those things. I love how you talked about the fans, uh, Jack, uh, uh, Joe, Jack, Joe, um, but how, um, and that's the thing he does. Every time you read one of his, like, like the captions and how he talks, he just pierces through the panels like, hey, friend. And it really feels not like audio drama, like he's talking to you. And mm -hmm. there is a quality that he got with with that, um, you know, that that was great. But it's more well, of I mean, entrepreneurship with, yeah. the, you know, that. Right. Work. Yeah. And well, like, that I point, mean, it's clear that it's clear that Kirby's work has stood the test of time. And it's kind of gratifying knowing through the work that you guys have done, what kind of person he was, I think he would be pleased to know that, you know, decades and decades later, we're still talking about and appreciating his work and that his work and his life has inspired your, your piece of artwork, you know, with this, um, with this, with this play now audio drama. Um, so just to, just to wind things up uh, here, um, you know, of course this was in the past for you guys. Um, what are you currently working on? Uh, first, let me just kind of go around the horn and start with the uh, start with Bobby and uh, you know what kind of creative projects are you are you involved in right now? Well, since COVID uh, stopped everything that was supposed to, I was supposed to have three productions around the world this year and a concert in London, and those didn't happen. Um, so um, 
I actually turned one of my uh, pieces into a digital uh, film that was completely done in quarantine when each actor was in their own space and it's being, it's taking many months to edit, but um, it's like a sort of supernatural kids with psychic abilities and they go into this underworld. It's like Goonies meet Stranger Things and um, it's called Psych Kids. And um, so that took up a lot of my time because I could do that digitally. I could score it all digitally as well. Um, and then, you know, this gift came my way at a time that I really needed <laughs> something creative. Um, I feel like more of a, um, like this year has been like contracts and just like getting things up in order. And so the, when this creatively came, it's funny just listening to everything that everyone's been saying, it's really cool because everything that you all said recently is what I tried to bring in the music. Um, Steve, your performance, um, the drive of it and the, the, the honesty and the relationship with Roz, like that was to me, that was my hook in. And when I first heard the scene where you come up with the idea the first time of taking everything that you knew as a kid and turning it into, that to me, I was like, well, that's the, that's the superhero. He's the superhero. It's everything that's inside of him. And maybe if I had been traveling around the world, I wouldn't have uh, been as meticulous with the score, but um, yeah, so that's what, and hopefully when everything comes back, Crystal and I have a play that I uh, am scoring that is supposed to go to London and um, we'll see. It's all just kind of wait and see. Very cool. Tim, how about you? Uh, I have been occupying a lot of my time with Dungeons and Dragons, playing it, streaming it on Twitch, uh, painting minis, writing third-party content, adventures and stuff, and uh, putting it up for sale on the DMs Guild. That's kind of what I've been uh, spending my quarantine year doing. So, uh, yeah, other, you know, I have other creative irons in the fire, but that's kind of what I've been focusing on lately. Excellent. Amy? What have I been doing? Um, yeah. Okay. So what have I been doing? Uh, I've just recorded my commercial voiceover demo. That's in post. Um, so that's kind of exciting. Um, uh, my one good closet is getting ready to be turned into some kind of janky sound booth. We'll see how well that goes in Washington Heights. Um, I am almost done with what I think is going to be the final pass on a sweet Christmas rom-com novel that I started for NaNoWriMo in 2016 as a way to deal with the election. And um, the rewrites have, have been done during pandemic. So it, it feels kind of cyclical, getting it, getting it done. Um, and other than that, I, I uh, shot a a feature, a crazy little feature that we shot, believe it or not, in two days um, that during the last couple of months, the, uh, the director slash producer managed to get that finished, sent out to a whole bunch of little festivals and that's been ranking stuff up. So I'm kind of excited that I had anything on IMDb for 2020. Um, but yeah, it's it's more like watching things come in and going, oh, that happened, or oh, that's going on, or watching TV and going, my friend, my friend, I miss people. Look at my friend on television. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. Very cool. Matt? 
Uh, I uh, uh, also I'm a I'm a novelist as well. Uh, I'm a horror writer, and I've got uh, two books coming out uh, on uh, uh, Macmillan's new horror imprint, Nightfire. Uh, so the uh, I'm finishing up the third draft of the first one uh, right now. It's in fact right behind my laptop screen, staring at me in the face uh, with its judgmental eyes. Uh, so that comes out, uh, I think, July of next year, and then the second book will come out, uh, hopefully, the year after, if I can finish that one up. Uh, and uh, that's been eating up the bulk of my brain, um, and uh, I have some, some other uh, fun news that I can't talk about yet, so I won't tell you that. But I'm uh, uh, involved in a uh, podcast uh, audio drama company as well called uh, Gideon Media, uh, and uh, with, uh, with another Brick playwright alum, Mac Rogers, because uh, we are a very incestuous scene. Uh, and uh, so we've got a couple things on that end also coming out soon, but I don't know if I can name the details yet, but you can go to gideonmedia.com and find out when, you can, when we can announce those details. Um, yeah, so, so mostly the book and then things shrouded in mystery. Excellent, Joe? Uh, well, I, uh, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, um, two girls, so that's, that's keeping me pretty busy. Um, I work for, I'm, I'm in my office now, I'm, I'm a scene shop supervisor for NYU, so for the last year I haven't done any of my job, because there's no shows to build, so I'm not building any shows, so... Uh, on the upside, um, I've been staying busy, um, randomly supervising classes, like all the college courses that require video link. Um, I, I sort of reverted back to your high school AV club friend who sets up the projector, basically what I've been doing. <laughs> um, um, and then as far There's as- a wallet creative, chain when you do it too? <laughs> no, but I do have my keys on a lanyard. Is that- that's, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> same diff that counts um yeah it's uh and then a, there's a there's been this weird renaissance with uh old friends from uh college at syracuse university uh, a friend of mine who is a who's a who's an author she started putting together these uh ridiculous let's all do uh a, a zoom stage reading uh completely unofficial of various screenplays and films that we love from like the 80s and 90s so, you know, I think this weekend we're going to do Stand By Me. Awesome. I'll be playing the Corey Feldman role. Yeah, you will. <laughs> yeah, not remotely appropriate at all age-wise <laughs> or, or anything. But, you know, just kind of, it, it ends up, it ends up, it's, it's all, it's, it becomes a bunch of people in their 40s very drunk, <laughs> like reading, yelling at their computers at one in the morning. So, uh, so that's been a lot of fun. But to get very creative with our, uh, with our spare time in the last year year that's for sure and then Stephen, yeah. i know i speak for all of uh, venture brothers nation uh, nation in lamenting that we won't be hearing uh from dr orpheus at least officially anytime soon uh but what else have you uh what else have you got going on uh well they shut down the theaters so as my uh my mom used to say in her best brooklyn accent you're a bum <laughs> you're a bum you don't do anything um I was working on a, a musical of uh, the light of uh, Joy Mangano. And if you saw that, that movie Joy about the um, woman who invented the miracle mop, and there's the 
um, which is just wonder, extraordinary music. It's just really, really great. Right before the pandemic uh, hit. And, uh, and then, yeah, they closed down the theaters. The next project I'm going to work on as all these theaters struggle to figure out uh, how to put on a play with this new medium. I mean, even working it out with the unions and stuff, how do we screen a play? So uh, the playwright um, actor, uh, David Greenspan wrote a new play called The Memory Motel that the Two River Theater in New Jersey is doing, uh, just gonna start in, I think in a couple of weeks. But it's, uh, I have no idea how they were gonna do it, you know, in, in, under the pandemic. I, I know it's going to be somehow over, you know, mediated over the internet in some way. So uh, it'll be exciting to see what happens with, with, with that. So that's the next actual show, I which I'm excited okay. about. Fantastic. And finally, the volcano of creative activity that is the Fred and Crystal experience. What do you guys have uh, on deck? Well, we live together so we don't get to rest because we can we can do things together. And, he, and Fred can run and be like, I have this idea. It's like, so hard. It's like, I'm trying to sleep. Oh, um, no, no, it's fun. It's like a it's like a, a creative treehouse in our in our world. Um, so uh, we have a uh, uh, we actually got a, a print copy of our, our story from Adventure Time recently, so that was nice to get in the mail. It'd be exciting. Um, and a, and a boom, comic very book specific of Princess Bubblegum, uh, you know, um, edition, um, and uh, which we loved. And uh, we have written Eat Fighter. Um, we workshopped that a bit with some actors as we were working, including Joe, um, as we were um, hearing that out loud. Um, and it's been It's being shopped around by a cart by Webtoon, the publisher is a cartoon. So hopefully we'll that, you know, that would be great. We really love that cartoon. Um, and speaking of cartoons uh, right now, if you enjoy this, if you enjoyed this sort of look into comics history, my uh, fellow Syracuse alumni, uh, alum Ryan Dunlavy and I are currently doing the comic book history of animation, which is coming up from IDW right now. Yep. And uh, the play that uh, Bobby mentioned is called Rain's Always Save the World. It's about teenage activists. Um, Drew and Dane Productions, we are all in works with a possible production um, in the next year and a half when theaters come up. So we're, we've kind of got to keep on task for that. Um, even though there's all these other things. Um, and what else? Oh, yes, I have a new audio uh, drama series that I'm working on called The Magician's Magician, which will be coming out from Boom Integrated. And so there's been a lot of incestuous brick different action. Different Boom than the Boom that does the adventure. Yes, different comics. Boom. Um, they, um, uh, I'm in the, uh, um, the Writers Guild uh, Audio Alliance, and so I'm in there with Gideon. So I get to, I don't get titles of what's being cooked up, but I get to hear a lot of things. Um, and, and just a little fun thing that people can listen to while they're waiting in addition uh, would be as a teacher, I still teach with a theater development fund and they did something quite extraordinary. They went online. So I appear every other hour <laughs> for 40 minutes and it's actually more efficient. I know everyone's really sad about schools, but I gotta be honest, I've been in schools before and we got like 15 minutes in before. So um, uh, to, to uh, sing out uh, the talents of our, 
our members here, uh, they've all seen Indecent. They've studied Indecent, and it's been a big deal for them on Broadway HD. So that's why, something. Tell them why you're bringing up Indecent. Oh, because of Steven Rattazzi being in, uh, one of the incredible, uh, you know, ensemble members that is an ensemble show. Um, and uh, it's 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 really helped uh, young theater makers um, and writers. And also studying the audio drama Steal the Stars, uh, written by Mac Rogers, which we actually do in depth. Uh, both shows, we actually go in depth because they have the script and they also look at um, certain scenes so both and in why, terms of their drama and, and why is that important in that's important because nat cassidy wrote the book of it and i think you are actually the the novelization of still the stars and also Nat, are you in you're in the oh, series in i am i'm lloyd the scientist the lovable right? scientist oh lloyd. that's so cool oh, poor lloyd so to surprise you you knew you've been corrupting the youth everywhere you're and you all no touching idea. lives yep and, well, the, and that, teenagers still want to write plays well, fantastic. I'd like to I'd like to keep doing them. <laughs> here, here. So I want to thank all of you for inviting me to your seven years after the fact cast party for the absolutely stellar, great production of King Kirby. It was great on the stage. It's great on the audio cast. Um, whether you're a diehard comics geek like me or just somebody that's interested in a really cool, well written and well performed piece of contemporary theater. Uh, I hope everybody gets to enjoy this. Uh, my name is Rob Salkowitz. You can follow my stuff on Forbes or follow me on Twitter at Rob Salk. Um, and again, thank you so much for all of this. I hope everybody enjoys the performance. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.